uh, Mark chapter 8 is uh, where we left off. Um, Jesus is uh, healing and teaching, uh, and uh, he is giving us this uh, statement um, uh, in particular in this last bit of discussion back in verse 13. He left them getting the boat part of the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread. Uh, they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. He charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod. Just had a conversation this morning with some people who, you know, there's, there's sometimes people will try to make uh, Christians getting involved in politics. They'll say, that's the leaven of Herod. Okay. Uh, no, uh, the leaven of Herod is hypocrisy. Okay. Uh, Herod. Uh, has a Jewish background, and he's constantly trying to do Jewish religious things. And he's a ridiculously corrupt Roman leader. You know, his his hypocrisy is hypocrisy, okay? Um, Christians need to be involved in politics because politics are corrupt, and we need to be salt and light in those settings. Uh, if you're truly a Christian and truly salt and light, you probably won't be able to get into politics because they're going to hate you and do everything they can to bar you from being there. And then when you get inside, if you're truly a Christian and you're truly salt and you're truly light, uh, your career will probably be really short. Okay? But get in there. <laughs> Fight. Be involved. Go to those, uh, you know, teachers' meetings, those town meetings, those state meetings, those federal occasions that you can, and bring the gospel in your mouth and stand up for truth. Salt, right? That, that isn't just about lending flavor. Salt is a preservative. And there was no refrigeration. And that's how they kept things from rotting, was salting them. That's how everything was preserved, was through salt. It was incredibly valuable. Because everybody used it to preserve everything. You, Roman soldiers were often paid in salt because you could use it as currency. That's how valuable it was. We're salt and we're light. And if the salt has lost its savor, what good is it for? If we're, if we're not preserving this world, right? If we're not here fighting, standing up, declaring truth, then what good are we for? You know, other than to be thrown out and discarded, as Jesus said. Light, illumination, light also keeps the bacteria from growing, right? It, it stops bad things from progressing. It's also, if you're not aware of it, it's the source of life. And you go, yeah, right, plants. No, in human beings. Massive studies being done inside the Arctic Circle about infertility amongst those who live massive periods of the year in darkness, and it's producing infertility in them. Preservation, life, that's what we are. And, and the church is throwing up to every single election, you guys, up until this last one, because, you know, we're pretty sure it was stolen, but, you know, anyway, you can't prove nothing anyway, so you just sit back and go, whatever. But but every single election previous to this, if if 10% more, Christians had gone to the poll, we would have won by landslides. Landslide, just 10% more of the Christian populace. 
That's how much Christians sit on their laurels and let the corruption take place. Okay, Hypocrisy. I think it's the voice of the devil in the church that says Christians being involved in politics is the hypocrisy of Herod. Think about this, right? Jesus lends his opinion, right? Calling Herod uh, a fox. Okay? He doesn't hold his opinion back. John the Baptist confronts him, right, over his own personal life. I mean, he gets right in the guy's face, loses his head over confronting him for his sexual immorality. Right? He stole his brother's wife, Philip's wife, who was in fact his own niece, and married her. And John says, you know, it's not right you're with that woman. <laughs> Confronting them. There, there's great need for it. Beware of its leaven. Yeah, I know. It's, it's the same thing the Pharisees are doing, acting like they're religious. I'm Jewish. <laughs> you're Jew. You know, what does Paul tell us is Jewish? The heart that's surrendered to the Lord is a child of Abraham. You know, this whole, you know, ancestry thing is meaningless. When it comes to faith, are you truly committed to the Lord? So they reason among themselves, saying it's because we have no bread. Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened, having eyes? Do you not see, having ears? Do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said 12. He also when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did, large baskets, excuse me, full of fragments did you take up? They said seven. And we've already read through these and studied them, but each of those things significant, right? Because they're worried about their own hunger when they feed with the five loaves and the two fish and they get the 12 baskets. Like they're, they're worried about their own hunger. We should send these people away, right? Because we've stolen this kid's lunch. So, you know, this little kid had five loaves and two fish. And so we're clear on that. Again, I know I've already been through this. But, you know, he's got five. This kid's got five English muffins. Five loaves and two fish. Two, you know, he's got two sardines. We, we've sto stolen this kid's lunch. And, and we're going to divvy it up amongst us, 12 guys. You know what I'm saying? It's just get rid of these people. They're, they're thinking about themselves. And so what does Jesus do? He feeds everybody, and what do they have when they're done? Every one of them has a basket. Jesus is saying to them, if you stop thinking about yourself, you'd realize I have enough to take care of everybody, including yourself. Right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. They are missing the concept, missing the concept, missing the concept, missing the concept, right? This is his program. And this is what it, the scripture is saying right here. You know, I'm not just doing that for effect. He's saying, you got eyes, you got ears. You guys aren't hearing or seeing anything. Blind. Feed 4,000. What do we get left? Right? Seven, right? Number of completion, right? Number of perfection, some say. You know, number of rest. How about that? Rest. Number of peace. Number of calm. So they said to, that he So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? Look, you can hang that sign over my head, unfortunately, right? 
How is it you do not understand? What is wrong with you, man? You know, God just sends the lesson, sends the lesson, sends the lesson, sends the lesson. You know, and, and after I've just worn it out, I go, ah, oh, as though it's the first time, you know, I declare how brilliant I am for recognizing it. God is so patient, so patient, so, so kind to continue to deliver the message to make sure we're getting what we need. And now we get to uh, this evening study. So your sermon before the sermon, pre-sermon, however you anyway. Verse 22, then he came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit in his eyes, wait a second, you know, does that sound like the healing ministry you were wanting to be involved in? You know, spit in his eyes, put his hands on him. And he asked him if he saw anything. It's a really strange method. Really, really unique circumstance. And you can do a lot of speculation about what is going on. We'll look at some of the understandable practicality, but really peculiar. He looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Now, We've talked before, right, about the healing of the man who was mute and, and the way the Lord worked, and restored his hearing, and his speech impediment was restored in the process. Uh, here, this tells us he must have seen previously, right? Well, he, he can distinguish trees, okay? So he has that understand. He, he also says... You know, I see men, so he must understand what the physical form is. So it seems as though there was sight and it was lost. But now he has enough in that understanding to say things aren't right. Okay? There's, there's more to that as we examine when we move on. Uh, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into town, into the town, nor tell, any, tell anyone in the town. I'll just get that out of the way first. Uh, Jesus is more and more having to hold back on the reins of these people wanting to make him Messiah. Okay? Because there is a very particular day that he needs to be declared as the Messiah, April 6, 32 AD. And he does not want anybody messing up God's word and prophecy and timeline. Because Daniel the prophet had been in captivity. He reads Jeremiah 25. He recognizes, hey, the Lord predicted we would be in captivity for 70 years, and we're almost there. So are we about to be set free? So he goes to praying and fasting, and 21 days later, Gabriel shows up and doesn't just tell him, yes, the nation of Israel is going to be set free. He tells him the entire future of Israel. And in particular, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, he tells Daniel, 
from the order to restore and rebuild the temple. It's according to the you know Babylonian lunar calendar, and if we convert it into the Alexandrian calendar that the world uses today, he tells Daniel that from the order to restore and rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah will be 173,880 days. So on March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes, speaking to Nehemiah, gives the order that they can go back and rebuild the temple. March 14th, 445 B.C., hit your stopwatch and start counting, 173,880 days. Now listen, just quickly, many of you heard me do this before. This is all stolen information from somebody else's study. I've just been careful to, re to memorize it, okay? More than 100 years old. <clears throat> so so it's, it's really remarkable, right? Because you get that 173,880 days very specifically that's going to pass from March 14, 445 B.C. to April 632 A.D. But inside that calculation, right, it is the change of calendar from 360-day years over to 365 and a quarter days. And what is little known is the fact that the, the earth actually rotates around the sun one 128th of a day more than 365 and a quarter. So every 128 years, we have to skip a leap year. Otherwise, we would be messing the calendar up. We go 365 and a quarter, and <coughs> oh, actually, every 128 years, we're missing a day, so you got to skip that leap year. So if you do the calculation according to the Alexandrian calendar, 365 and a quarter days, you do the calculation from March 14th, 445 BC to April 632 AD, what you end up with is 173,883 days. But if you remove every 128 years, the one day from the calendar, you come up with, you got it, 173,880 days to the day. So when Jesus is telling people repeatedly, hey, hey, you keep this to yourself. When they all mob and they're going to take him and he passes through the crowd, it's because this is not my day. There's a day, right? When he tells his disciples, I want you to go in town and you're going to find a donkey and you untie it. And if the owners sort of chew you out, you just tell them that the master has need of it and they'll let you take the donkey. You know, Pre-orchestration, so beautiful. Rides in, declares him silent, right? And we know how fickle the crowd is because in seven days they're going to crucify him, right? But the timing of the Lord is critical. Remember that in your own life, right? Because I have the need and I'm screaming my head off like I'm on fire and the Lord is just saying, calm down. We're going to work this out according to my timeline. And in the end, he does. His graciousness works these things out. So this man, don't go in town. Don't tell anyone in town. <clears throat> they very often do anyway. But what it does is it slows it down, right? This man doesn't rent an amphitheater and gather everyone together and just start, you will not believe what Jesus did to me. He, he's telling people, you know, <clears throat> in Christianity, you know, what, you know, what is gossip by definition? It's a, it's a prayer request that you tell, you know, one person at a time. You know, that's, it's unfortunate. That's, but, you know, uh, keep, keep that in mind. Um, here, 
this guy told by Jesus, don't, don't tell people. Jesus and his disciples, verse 27, went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? That, that is a really, uh, that's a really great way to start evangelism, street evangelism. If, if you have never done that, um, I would strongly encourage you to read these passages and passages like it and, and just ask people like, uh, you know, we go to Bar Harbor in the summer and we'll just say, Hey, uh, you know, can I talk to you a minute? And, you know, I like to just be upfront about basically, I'm going to try to convert you. You know what I'm saying? Cause I, I, I'm always bugged when somebody puts a sales pitch in and you're like two thirds of the way through and you realize this is a sales pitch. So I, I much rather just get that out of the way. That honesty, I think, goes further. But just, what do you think about Jesus? You know, have you heard about Jesus? What do you, what is what is your take on Jesus? And let him dish it out, and then go at it from the scripture and and correct the understanding of what it is. So here, you know, similar thing. You know, you know, who do men say that I am? That's very different from who am I. Who do people think I am? You got all kinds of opinions. You got, I mean, wow, right? Just go down the road and just start asking people that you meet. You know, what do you, what do you think of Jesus? Who, who do you think Jesus is? You're gonna get, you know, big clusters of similar answers, but it's gonna be pretty broad in in the whole spectrum. You know, you'll you'll probably get spit on a few times at least in the process. So here. And who who do men <clears throat> say I am? They so they answered John the Baptist, right? That was that was Herod's whole take. His paranoia led him to believe that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated, you know, because their their messages were similar. Yeah. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They both <clears throat> started their ministries <clears throat> with that message and very prominently preached that. And I'll make the point again. I've I pointed out a lot in this study that each time Jesus moves and goes to a next group, he always says, uh, I have to go and teach them. And I have to go over here and teach them. And it says, and then he arrived there and taught them. And he arrived there and taught. And he went there and he taught. And he went over here and he said, I got to teach. And I got to." His ministry is a teaching ministry. It's very significant because there's a lot of Christianity that thinks Jesus' ministry was a miracle ministry, which it was, but Jesus was always motivated by teaching. We're going to go and we're going to teach, and then miracles are going to happen, right? And that's what the scripture says about Christians, that it should be about the teaching and the miracles will follow, right? The miracles will follow. You know, once again, for those that say, well, yeah, but not like in the book of Acts. I mean, that was just a constant firework display of supernatural experiences, one after the other. Well, I'll give it to you again. The book of Acts spans more than 40 years. And if you spread out what was going on in the book of Acts over 40 years, you're looking at less than a miracle a year. The church is still seeing miracles at the same rate it was when the church first started. You know, you can read the book of Acts in an afternoon. You know, you're kind of floating on a cloud like, wow, that is some supernatural stuff. 
and you go out and try to, you know, literally recreate that, you can produce for yourself a tremendous sense of depression. That, that somehow you're not meeting a certain standard or bar. When I first started this church, I got a phone call from a fellow minister in the area. He tells me this dear woman in our church who <clears throat> very elderly, she's ministered to everybody. Everybody loves her. She's solid, faithful Christian. You know, just everybody looks to her for the word and the knowledge and the faith. And she's, she's been through stuff and had to live through tremendous things. And, uh, uh, she had a stroke and uh, fell and, and struck her head. And um, she lay alone in her home, bleeding from a head wound for uh, like a very long time. Many, 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 many hours. And they found her. And everybody, you know, freaks out in ambulance and rush her. And by the time they even get her to medical, medical examination, she's already brain dead. And uh, life flight and down to Boston and doctors confirm, you know, it's just a matter of hours. But we're crazy. So can your church join us in prayer? My fellow minister asked me. Sure. You know, Steve Sobel, Franklin Baptist Church. I say, absolutely, man, we'll pray. This church is just starting. We're young. I tell everybody the whole deal. We pray. Steve calls me the next day. He says, you won't believe it. Eleanor's sitting upright in the bed in Boston, eating toast, drinking coffee, asking her doctors when she can go home. You know, that was 20 years ago. I don't know if Eleanor's you know, still with us. She'd be close to 100 or over 100, but you know, it wasn't her time. The Lord had more for her to do, and that taught a whole bunch of Christians faith. You know, Sometimes we go through junk, and uh, you know, we think that there's some terror thing horrible and what did jesus say right no this is so that god can be glorified miracles still happen today and we trust him for them it's up up to him you know he answered john the baptist some say elijah and others one of the prophets that's all you know from common opinion and even common some of the most common interpretations of the scripture regarding the Messiah that was going to come, right? Because the prophets predicted <clears throat> that Elijah would precede the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't fit their mindset of the Messiah because <clears throat> he doesn't ride a white horse. He's not conquering Rome. He's clearly godly. He performs miracles. So maybe he's like Elijah. He doesn't fit our model but he's clearly sent from God, so maybe he fits this other thing. Maybe he's, you know, the prophet Moses spoke of when Mo Moses promised that one like unto myself would come and minister to you, the nation of Israel. So they're like all slippery interpreting what this means in the midst of it. Keep that in mind, right? Because, you know, right now things going on and people are interpreting what they're seeing in the news. And what's well, say, is this the mark of the beast? Is that the mark of the beast? Is this going to be, you know, Ezekiel 38? Is that Russia, Gog, Magog? What's, wh where are we? <clears throat> I, I bet we'll know once it's happened. You know, one of our guiding pastors, uh, Joe Foch, Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, says, don't worry about it. We'll be watching from the mezzanine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's that elevated seating position. 
in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Here, common opinions. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Verse 30, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. I would ask you to put your bookmark right there for just a moment and turn with me to the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Same circumstance, same account. Matthew gives some different details. So, just as you're turning to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to jump in at verse 17. But just so we understand some details here, John Mark is the author of Mark. And he worked with Peter to build what is one of the most concise Gospels. They consolidate accounts down to some of the simplest understanding, right? You want to cruise right through the gospel and the ministry of Jesus Christ? Mark's a good book to do that in, right? John, you know, very high, lofty, spiritual, you know, insight. You know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt amongst us. It gets, you know, poetic and deep. Mark and Peter... You know, they're from the hip sort of guys, you know, fishermen and real straightforward. So their approach has that simplistic understanding. I don't, I don't mean simplistic as in base. I mean concise. Matthew, right, was a tax collector. One of the qualifications of a tax collector was they had to be capable of shorthand. They needed to be able to write verbatim what they were experiencing in the conversations that they're having. So if you're saying to someone, I'm going to have to tax you on this, and they're saying, who do you think you are? You're a Jew, and you're making us pay taxes. And that man standing in front of you is going like, (laughs) with every single syllable that he says, And every single syllable that you say, he's writing it down. And that's why his gospel is so lengthy. He's recorded details. We don't know that he's doing shorthand, but he's of that mindset of capture the particulars. Note the time, right? Talk about the political leaders that were in play as certain things were unfolding. You get a great picture of detail from Matthew. And here he gives us some insight that's really quite unique. We couple these things together. It's the same account. We put them together and we get a different understanding, a more clear understanding. Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Blessed are you. You nailed it. That's it, right? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, Peter, 
Uh, I, I say to you that you are Peter, rather. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So very similar, but there are some details I want you to take note of. I think it's significant for us as we're digging through these. The first thing I want you to take note of is in verse 18. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, right? And upon this rock I will build my church. Now from that, particularly the Roman Catholic institution has said Peter is the rock on which Jesus Christ built his church. Now, to be clear, when he says in verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, the term is Petros, which by definition is a piece of rock. You are a small piece of rock. The statement and the naming of Simon, right? This is a nickname that Jesus is giving Simon. Simon Peter. Simon is being named here a small piece of rock. It's not especially endearing, right? We think of it as like, you know, Petra, which is the next word, you know, massive rock. I'm going to build my church on you. And what he really said is, look, I'm going to call you pebbles. Okay? You're, you're like a little rock. You're a small rock. You're a piece of rock. You know, if I said to you, man, you are a piece of rock, that would not, you'd be like, what, is he, what does he mean by that? <laughs> okay? Especially if I said to you, I'm going to call you a small piece of rock. And upon a massive rock, I'm going to build my church. And that's what he said. Petros, small piece of rock. And upon a Petra, a massive piece of rock, I'm going to build my church. And the Greek language is such that the subject of the rock and the building of the church is the statement that Jesus is the Christ. You can't, you can't move. You cannot move in the Greek language the subject of the rock any other way. Jesus Christ is, or Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock he's referring to, and that's the rock he's going to build his church upon. Jesus makes the statement, right, about the fact that he is the rock. Those that build their lives upon him are wise, right? They're how, though the storm come, they will not crumble. You, you do not want to build your life upon any other man. Okay, now, Peter was the first pope, they incorrectly say. Okay, well, the scripture very clearly shows us who the first leader of the church was. It was Jesus' half-brother, James. The, the church grows into massive conflict 
by the time you get to Acts chapter 15 over the issue because the Jews had begun to say, well, yeah, you're a Gentile, and it seems as though you've been welcomed into Christianity. Peter went to the house of Cornelius and preached, and the Holy Spirit fell, and you guys got saved. But if you want to become a Christian, you're going to have to become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. You can't eat meat, you know, you can't eat unclean meat. You can't do a number of things. You have to religiously become Jewish, and then you can become a Christian. Well, that conflict grows until they finally send church leadership collectively to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and they hold what we now refer to as the Jerusalem Council. And there's a big tumult, and everybody's arguing, and opinions are being thrown around, and then people calm down, and they start to give account about how did things transpire. And Peter gives his explanation of how the Gentiles became saved, and Paul's talking about his influence and ministry amongst them. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to them all, and who conclusively brings the whole thing to an end? It's James. Peter and Paul are answering to James. He doesn't take some lordship position overall but he consolidates the church under the banner of what the Holy Spirit is saying to them. The summary of that statement, and I'm summarizing because he, he words it differently in Acts chapter 15, but is they're going to command the Gentile church to stay away from, to abstain from sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, if you're sitting there as a good student of the Scripture saying, well, he actually said from things strangled and from blood. Right. Those were both idolatrous practices of the Gentiles. Stay away from idolatry and sexual immorality. Hey, guess what? <clears throat> That's still the struggle of the Gentile church today. Right. Sexual immorality in the Gentile church today is a massive problem. Sexual immorality in the leadership of the Gentile church today is a massive problem. Idolatry, the biggest thing that the church has just accepted, just accepted, they don't even recognize it as idolatry at all. They've just accepted it. Materialism. Money. You know, they don't even think that they're a church unless they become a mega church. You know, they're a pretty good church. <laughs> you know, just right for not much of a Christian sort of attitude. You know, you know the average size, people look at Calvary chapels and there's some big ones. The average size of Calvary chapels around the world, there, there are, there are 1,500 in the U.S., the average size is less than 200 people. Most Calvary chapels are really quite small, most of them. There are a few big ones. You know, if, if you go to San Diego, California, and you cut out a cardboard dove and stick it on, you know, the front of a building, you, you're going to instantly have 300 people. It's crazy. You, you know, you can be a terrible uh, I mean this, you can be a terrible preacher, a terrible Christian, and you, you stick a dove up and people go, Calvary Chapel, and fill the place. It's crazy. There's something wrong with Christianity in this regard. 
because they try to build upon the wrong thing. You got to build upon Jesus Christ, right? You're not even building on James. You're building on on the rock that is Jesus Christ. That's what the church has to build on. It's not built upon a man. I've I've said here in this evening study, my whole job is to get the training wheels off of you. To where you're following Jesus Christ on your own. You can't be following me. You can't be following some other Christian. Oh, I, just, I heard him on the radio. I really like him. You know, he's got a Scottish accent. I just, you know. Right? There's many that I love like that. But it has to be Jesus that I'm following. It has to be Jesus that you're following. Okay. The second portion of this that I want you to take note of, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, hell, shall not prevail against it. And, and by the way, he was actually standing at an idolatrous altar in Israel that is referred to as the gates of hell. Okay. He was standing there where, where this, you, you, they, in the tours, they still take people there and read this together and you, you have a, a clear understanding of it. The, the, the more significant thing, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, you know, from there, right, Peter's going to be standing at the gate, we're being told, and, you know, he'll, you know, you got to show up and tell him whatever, you know, probably three good jokes, and then he'll let you in, or just this, all the things I've heard. It's just absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Okay? Uh, he's speaking to the apostles, and he's using a common phraseology that actually was used in regard to the, the religious leadership of the Jews. They, they literally actually had a ceremony they went through where when they reached a certain level of understanding and teaching and status in the community where they were accepted as a religious leader. Remember how Jesus, especially in Matthew 5 and then later in Matthew 17, he's pronouncing woes and he says, you guys love the greetings in the marketplace. He just, you're just all about this recognition. They actually went through this ceremony where they presented them with a key and they would wear that key. Usually they didn't wear it forever, but especially when you first got it, you'd hook it right on. Big gold key. It's a fake key, but you got like everybody's gonna see. Like you've passed the bar. He got the key. Their understanding of that was this person has been trained in the scripture, and they understand the symbolic keys that allow them to interpret the rest of the scripture. They're schooled in the book in such a way that they now have the keys that unlock the rest of the book. That's what this is from. Okay? A simpler understanding for us, remember when we used to have paper maps? Okay? And down in the corner of the map, there was a key. Remember that key? This little symbol represents railroad tracks. You're like, okay, that's the key. Oh, I can see there's a railroad track. There's one right near us. I didn't even realize that. 
this little key represents a highway. This is a secondary road. That represents a house. This is a government building. That's campsites. This is a ski area. The keys tell you how to interpret the map. That's literally what Jesus is saying here. I'm giving you the keys so that you can teach the word of God. So that you can interpret the rest. And it fits into this idea of what you loose, what you unlock here on earth will be loosed in heaven. What you lock up here on earth will be bound by heaven also. Listen, you guys, that doesn't mean we get authority to just say, yeah, I'm going to interpret any way I want to. Yes, sex was reserved for marriage in the past, but that's an antiquated thing. So I'm just going to reinterpret it. You know, we love one another in our hearts. You know, in our hearts, in our minds, we're already married. No, you're not. You know why you're not? More than anything, no, 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 not the state. More than anything, the church has said, not said you're married. You've not stood before the body of Christ and made an eternal commitment to that other person. You haven't done that. You are not married. You are not married. It doesn't matter, right? Okay, okay. now let's flip it around a little bit, right? If, if you got the key on your paper map, and here's this symbol that has like a road, and then there's like a slash through it, and you read next to it, it says like abandoned bridge, demolished bridge, bridge out. And you look, oh, look, there's a bridge right there that's derelict. That's, that's an abandoned, that's a demolished bridge. I should not plan my route that direction. But along comes the guy that has the mindset like some interpret, right? I can just unlock that. Oh, it doesn't matter that it says that. No, you can go down that road. Homosexuality is not a sin. Just go right ahead. You're going to destroy yourself. Well, we've declared it as an organization here on earth. And what is, you know, bound on the earth will be bound in heaven. Listen, this is what the church is doing. They're taking votes. And saying, because we all agree that this is the way it is. Therefore, because of this verse, literally, right? They're not even like disconnecting it. They're connecting it to this and saying, because we are the church... Right now, now think about how this really applies. We've built this organization upon men approving of men. Like the concept of Peter approving of the next pope and the next. So, so when, once you begin to reinterpret and misinterpret this, you create something that's completely unbiblical. And now everybody's just shaking hands and you're, you're a deacon and you're an elder and you're a pastor and you're an apostle and we agree and we propose and now we've changed everything and everybody's happy. No, no. You know what's on the other end of that? The, the gates of hell. The gates of hell is what's on the other end of that. It's a really treacherous thing to reinterpret this way. It's critical to understand that the authority we're being given only comes when you've studied the key very carefully 
and you know how to interpret the rest of the scripture. Because if people have gone along the way and changed the definitions, right? In the school we had here, we would joke around with the kids and say, commas save lives. And they would always get that. We'd drill it, right? Because if you say, come eat grandma, well, that's cannibalism. But if you say, come eat grandma, commas save lives, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you move small things in the scripture and you dramatically change definitions. You want to be really careful about that. Careful study of God's word, right, produces accurate understanding. I cannot sit here and tell you, oh, the sin you're presently engaged in, I'm, it's not a sin. Don't worry about it. Go ahead. It doesn't matter how much we all agree and shake hands and declare and maybe even rewrite. It doesn't matter. Right? This state was preparing to legalize homosexual marriage. And a local minister published a very lengthy article in the newspaper promoting homosexual marriage. And in it, he said, as far as I know, homosexuality is not condemned anywhere in the Bible. And I was left saying, like, I need to take this guy a Bible. As far as you know, right? Because maybe that's accurate. As far as he knows. Maybe he's never opened the book. All right? And secondly, he then quotes Jesus and says, See, Jesus didn't even condemn the woman caught in the act of adultery. And he then quotes the scripture where Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Okay, now you're right, because any any Christian worth half their weight in salt is going to say, yeah, but the rest of the verse is, go and sin no more. When people take the word of God and torture it like this, eternity's at stake. It's very, very dangerous. Our culture likes it. Oh, you're going to reinterpret? Oh, see, I like that. See, this is, this is what the scripture predicted about in the last days. They would heap up teachers for themselves, right? having itching ears. Yeah, yeah, scratch right there. I love that. I love it when you interpret that way. That's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. It, it takes a look. There, there's a number of things in the scripture that I, I don't like. I'd rather they were not in there at all, you know? And you're, you're, maybe you're thinking like some, like I don't like the concept of take up your cross daily. Oh, I do it, but my flesh does not like that at all. It doesn't wake up in the morning joyful, like let's go, <clears throat> you know? I'm usually, you know, unsaved in about, Till about 10.30 in the morning, you know, saying second cup of coffee. I'm not even, you know, I'm joking. But, you know, <laughs> but it's just, 
you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are you kidding? Like, I mean, it's like, it's, those people are crazy. You know, I don't, how am I going to do that? It's just, but, but I've learned, right? You know, that, you know, we, we say it, it's kind of cliche, but it's a happy, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> right? You know, the, you know, the, the, I, I try to do that in every way I possibly can. You know, pay attention to, you know, love your wife of Christ, love the church. Joe Foch summarized that by saying, yeah, uh, Jesus entered into her world and died there. Wow. <laughs> like, I, that, I wasn't wanting that. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that that's like hands in the dishpan sort of thing. I'm not, like... You know, any other way, please. Just I don't know. Like, let me die in a blaze of glory in a sword battle or something. Just not, not by being obedient and doing and serving. You know, the the longevity of marriage. There are things. You know, mine are probably more petty. You can't reinterpret the scripture. You have to let it stand as it is. And sometimes that takes careful diligence and searching. And, and, and darn it, you come to the conclusion that I was wrong. Now I've got to apply myself to what I see written right here. And, oh, the benefits, right? What we thought was going to be just so grueling and so terrible produced such wonderful things in our lives, in our families, in our homes, our children, uh, you know, our communities, our jobs. It's it's only the sinfulness of our flesh that wants these things changed. So it's a, it's a critical thing, you know. Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ. Wow, that's a very big thing. That's a real that's a really big deal that's being taught by Jesus. There, we'll move a little further. In verse 31, he began to teach him, saying, "The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed." And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Hey, listen. We read through some of these passages, and you see them arguing with one another about who's the greatest in the kingdom. I bet some of that was like right between verse 30 and verse 31. Right? Because who do people say that I am? Opinions and opinions and opinions. Who do you say that I am? Peter jumps up and says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, gold star. Front of the class. Awesome, man. Like, you're deeply spiritual. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heaven, I'm in touch with the heavenly father. Right? Peter's like, I got a direct connection here. Are you guys noticing this? You know what I'm saying? He's just like, you know, oh, you thought you were the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, have you, have you been hanging out with me, you know? And then Jesus has to, has to just a few verses later 
Look, note, notice how he does this, right? I mean, this the Holy Spirit recorded this, right? The Holy Spirit made sure that in these verses it said he turned around and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter, okay? So if I'm up here having a conversation with one of the deacons from the church, and you can all hear it, and he says something that's completely off base, and we're having private conversation, but then I turn around and I look at all you guys. I literally, I make sure I go all the way around. And I've, I've looked at all of you, and then I say, get behind me, Satan. That, that's a very, I'm making sure you see that I'm rebuking this person as being Satan. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because a few verses ago he said, you're the Christ, and I said, you hear from my heavenly Father, that a moment later you need to understand that what just came out of this man's mouth is from the devil himself. That, that's important. Listen, I've had to do that to some degree as a pastor. I've had men rise up. And say wicked things. That were leadership. And I've had to inform the congregation. You should not listen to this mouth. At times. What this mouth has said to you. Has been incredible. Straight from God. But I'm telling you right now. That what's coming out of that mouth right now. Is straight from the pit of hell. I've had to do that. And it's somewhat confusing, right? Uh, right. Those that have been here for a long time can attest it's happened incredibly rarely. <laughs> right. It's not like every other week we're doing this. But the, the bigger point I'm trying to make to you is that when the devil has spoken, you need to make sure the congregation knows. I, I, think, it's, I think it's a tragedy. Tragedy when such things happen and pastors keep their mouths closed. Because then the people don't know, should I listen to that? Should I, should I listen to that man? Should I listen to that statement? Maybe that statement is actually accurate. Peter takes Jesus aside like you take have you have you ever had your kids like start running their mouth in public? And you're like, hey, quiet, don't do that. And you're finally like, you lay hands on them and you yank them aside and you get right down and you're like, I told you before and you're not going to do it again. And I'm saying that you didn't talk like that. You know what I'm saying? You're not like that. I'm like that. Pray for me. So <clears throat> Peter has taken charge of Jesus. That's what it says right there in the original language. And he say, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter is saying, I will not let you do this. Stop talking like this. I am not going to. I see the swelled head in myself. I see Peter. Good job. You, the Holy Spirit revealed that to you. What a wonderful thing. You get an A. And I'm like, I get an A. That's wonderful. Now I'm running my mouth and saying things that are incorrect. And the Lord gets in my face and says, shut your mouth right now. 
Peter, Peter takes charge of Jesus and he's rebuking Jesus, saying, you're not going to the cross. I will not let that happen. And listen, Peter goes the full distance with that, doesn't he? They're going to the cross and Peter rips out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to struggle. I mean, do you, have you studied the passage? Do you understand that there's a Roman cohort there? There's 600 armed Roman soldiers. There's 600 fully armed paratroopers. And Peter rips out his machete. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's as dumb as you can imagine. There's, there's no victory on the other end. And what does Peter do? What does Peter do? He takes Malchus's ear off. And that's about how effective we are. We, we, we remove people's ability to listen to us through our ruined testimony, through our disobedience. Even though he gets rebuked right here, Peter, I think, I think Peter keeps this in his heart and he's like, well, we'll see. And he gets to the garden and he's, he's trying to carry this out. No, no. This, this is not how you're going down. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Take that to heart. Take that to heart. You know, few of us talking over the past couple days, you know, and, and if, you're, if you're sitting here thinking it's you, um, well, then it's all of you. Because we, a few of us have been talking the past few days about how politics drive us crazy. And, and it can compel us into doing and saying things that are not from God. They, they are of men. We are to engage in a war. We are. But it's a spiritual war. And our weapons are not of this earth. They are not fleshly. They are not carnal, as Paul said. Let's read the last bit of this. I've got one minute to cover all of this. So ready? Then he called the people to himself with his disciples also. He said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. So that's what taking up your cross is, denying yourself. Oh, we are selfish people. We really are. You know, I, I, I always point out how... Uh, you know, I don't even recognize it that it's selfishness. I, I, I think of it as like personal preference and taste, okay? But it's selfishness. Yeah. I, I know exact, exactly how a steak should be cooked and served. You know, I come to your house, and now you're going to be all paranoid, and you cook steak, and it's set down in front of me. At my first bite... My mouth does a thing in my mind that's like everything is graded on a scale. You know, seasoning, temperature, exact. You know, I may enjoy it, but there's a grading scale. And I, I almost guarantee you're exactly like me. You know, how about this? Here's a thing I've observed within myself. You may, you may do this, you may not do this. I eat a piece of cake. 
how I eat the piece of cake is entirely based upon the last bite. You got to time that all out and cut and you'll trim off and just I get to the place and, and then that last bite. And isn't it disappointing when you didn't realize that it was actually exposed to the air and a little drier than all of the previous? There's a disappointment involved in that. This is how selfish I am. Right? Just like you take the last bite and you're, you're told, you've, you've timed it out perfectly with everything. You know, the coffee sip and the whole nine yards is just right. At, oh, I didn't time it right. You know what I'm saying? I just, I, two bites ago was better than this. Die to yourself. The, the, to me, right, I'm not celebrating that. What I'm saying is I think we really very often miss how incredibly selfish we are. Die to yourself. Get over yourself. Think about this, right? If you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, do you time out his last bite like that? Are, are you that conscious of your neighbor? Right? Because we, we do it in the negative. If, forgive me for taking the time here, but, but follow this concept, you guys. I'm not just trying to wring every ounce out of this. I'm really trying to expose our flesh in this discussion. Right? It, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? I flip that around and I don't even realize it. My neighbor makes me really mad. I'd like to pound him in the face until the rage is completely gone out of my heart. And I don't care what that results in in his body. In the flesh, that's where I'm at. And I didn't do that. So that's how I loved my neighbor as myself. <laughs> I flip it around, right? In my, in my sinful interpretation, less bad equals good, right? I didn't do the wicked thing, and therefore, in my twisted mind, that equals doing a good thing. No, 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 no. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you even know how your neighbor likes his coffee? Do you even know what your neighbor would want? Do you even know what your neighbor's struggling with? Right? Loving your neighbor as yourself. You study. I study myself all the time. And I don't even realize it. I, I, I study how I like things. I know exactly, exactly how tight my shoelaces should be. No, you've tied your shoes. Bing, bing, bing. You do the second one, and you go to walk away, and you go, my left is slightly tighter than my right. I need to correct that right now. And you go back and fix it. Because you have a perfect tension in your mind. You study yourself. So do you love your neighbor the way you love yourself? We are so hung up on ourselves. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Yeah, I, it's an unfortunate thing, you guys, that I've examined it this way in my own life because that means I'm accountable to it. I have to be more conscious of other people. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Tell me Jesus didn't do this. Right? 
sinless? James says, he who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That means Jesus never one time knew to do good and didn't do it. He got up early and he cleaned the house and he emptied the trash and he did the dishes and he did the chores and he had the, the, the wagon loaded and the other people start getting up and getting their coffee and they're all cranky and old goody two sandals is, you know, outshined them again. You know, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know, they've heard that so many times. It's just. And after he's resurrected. Right? Both Jude and James call Jesus their master. They refer to themselves as Jesus' bond servants. Jesus, he denied himself, took up his cross, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I apply that in a lot of places. Because there's a whole big thing inside Christianity that is really engaged in trying to rehabilitate human beings rather than see them being reborn. See, our job is reborn, right? born again, it's not rehabilitated. We, we don't want to just change people. We want whole new people. That's what the Lord wants us doing in people's lives. You know, AANA, uh, God delivered me from drugs and alcohol. And, and in those environments, the only sin is drunkenness and drug use. Everything else is tolerable in those environments. It's a really unfortunate thing to create a sober human being who's still going to hell. What would it profit a man to gain his sobriety and lose his soul? Look, if you're going to hell, you might as well be loaded for the rest of the trip. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I mean it. If you're going to rebel and reject God all the way to your death... Why bother? Paul says that, right? If, if, if there's nothing, we are the most wretched people, is what he says. Here, what is a prophet man to gain the world, lose his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, the most successful position at his business? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. So interesting that he says that. In this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Take it to heart. Preach the word to the world that's around you. Open your mouth. Share. Be as bold as you possibly can. As, as bold as you possibly can. Right? May not be as bold as maybe we even need to be or could be. But let the Lord speak through your life. We need to be men and women who deny the flesh, who see the Lord's work being done in our lives. I put this reference in. I'm just going to touch on it quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 6. I referenced a little bit before, talking about the warfare 
that we're engaged in. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, right? And if you're one that says, yeah, I think i got strongholds in my life. I've got these battles and these things I've tried to get rid of, and they just seem insurmountable. I can't have victory. If, if you have strongholds, I hope that you've gotten the proper definition of what they are. Because verse 5 says, Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalt itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's about the control of your thought life. It's what your mind thinks about. That's what needs to be controlled. That's where the warfare is. That's where the weapon is. Is in fighting for and breaking through and having victory and controlling the thought and not allowing the thought in. Having what is probably this next verse, and I'll close with it, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's still referring to the thought life. You will pounce on the thought and say, this is unbiblical. This is wrong. I will not allow this. And as it tries to take ground, wants to have its area, its freedom, its influence, you will continue to stay right there and punish the thought. Perish the thought, we used to say. Right? Perish the thought. No, no, that's biblical. (laughs) There are thoughts that need to die in our lives we, we need to see the victory of christ the, the the death of our desires taking up the cross daily let christ give you victory amen amen all right that's more than the time we have so why don't we stand and we'll pray i was going to go to midnight like last time but i decided not to People fall out the windows and stuff, so...